guess what? If you stand on the side of a boat, uh, I kind of said that, and it brought me back to, brought back to my memory being in, living in London, and we were uh, doing a student night on the Thames, and I was sitting in a canoe, and a guy who must have been 350 pounds was actually scheduled to kayak with me. He stood the wrong side of the boat. We both went in, and the Thames wasn't clean at that point. So some people just really don't get it. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Central. If you're a guest of ours, welcome to the concluding week of our series, Bad Vice, where we are looking at the mistakes made, the lessons learned from the low-light reels of a number of biblical characters. If you have a Bible, turn to the 12th chapter of 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 12. Now, the story that we're going to look at functions on two levels. The first level involves the characters in the story. Now, that's pretty obvious. The second level involves the work of God behind the story. Now, we often miss the latter in part, I think, because it's quite difficult for us to keep our eyes focused on two places at the same time. When Vipka and I lived in Germany, we decided to take our children, we had three at the time, to the original Legoland, which is in Billund in Denmark. It was a couple of hours' drive from where we lived. Jonas was our youngest then. He was about three. Alicia was our oldest. He was about eight. And uh, Alec was uh, about five. And so we got to the park. It was grain. Uh, it was gray. It was rainy. It was kind of misty and overcast, typical Northern Europe type of day. And uh, the kids wanted to go on this big, massive playground. So we said, okay, but stick together. So all three of them kind of went up to the, you know, went up on the top of this playground. There were three slides. So they all sat down on the slides and they kind of went down. Out came Alec first, out came Alicia, but where was Jonas? So we kind of looked up the slide, wonder if he got stuck and he just never came down. It turned out that that slide came out the opposite end of the playground, which was in a different part of the park and we actually lost him. It was the only time we actually lost a kid in, a, in an adventure park was actually Jonas at three years old in a slide. Just goes to show that sometimes, even for parents, it's really difficult keeping your eyes on two places at the same time. Now, this story functions on two levels. There's the human, there's the divine. And what I'm going to do is in the first part, we're going to focus on the human level of the story. And notice how easy it is in tense seasons to make decisions that actually cause friction and disunity in a relationship. And then having done that at the back end of the message, we're going to just look at the, the divine perspective on all of this. So if you have a Bible, look at verse 1 of 1 Kings chapter 12. This is what we read. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, he returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. So notice what Jeroboam says, lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke. The background to this this story involves a group of people, the 10 tribes, feeling disadvantaged. Their grievance has its ground legitimately in the taxation policies that Solomon introduced. Now, they over-exaggerate this somewhat by pointing to the harsh labor. Solomon used forced labor, but the text is 100% clear that he never used forced labor on the people of God. He never did that. But they come to Jeroboam. Uh, Jeroboam goes to Rehoboam and says, listen, lighten the load, stop doing the harsh labor, and just make it a lot easier for us. There's the part of this that's legitimate. There's the part of this that is illegitimate. The illegitimate part has to do with the labor. Now, to make sure that we get that, let's have a look at 1 Kings 9, verses 15 through 23. There's a portion of this. This is what it says. Here is the account of the forced labor. Notice that, not harsh labor, forced labor. King Solomon conscripted to build the Lord's temple 
his own palaces, the terraces, the wall of Jerusalem, and Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. And then it goes on, but Solomon, Solomon used the forced labor of the foreigners that were living amongst the ten tribes. But Solomon did not make slaves of any of the Israelites. They were his fighting men, his government officials, his officers, his captains, and the commanders of his chariots and his charioteers. They were also the chief officials in charge of Solomon's projects, 550 officials supervising those who did the work. So you'll see this, right? There's an aspect of legitimacy to the claim, but there's also a part of this where they overstate their case. Now, in addition to all of this, and this is his background, in addition to all of this, 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 20 through 25, this is the taxation chapter, also states that the nation thrived under Solomon. But the problem was that Solomon's taxation policy taxed pretty much every tribe except his own, the tribe of Judah. Now, some call Solomon corrupt, but what we read here isn't corruption. We're not talking about corruption with Solomon. We're actually talking about policies that unfairly disadvantaged some solely on the basis of their tribal affiliation. Now, if we think about this today, we recognize, don't we, that government is not obligated to treat everyone exactly the same. What do I mean by that? My 16-year-old son is able to drive. Jaden, my 14-year-old son, is not able to drive. It's not unfair to set a policy that actually favors one group over another. If you are a millionaire, you do not get access to the same support system that you would if you're on welfare. Having said that, we all know that government is obligated to treat people the same if they are similarly circumstanced. Solomon's taxation policy basically provoked tension in the nation because it was considered discriminatory. As a result of that, tribal tensions that actually existed even under David's reign rose to the surface, and as soon as Solomon died, the ten tribes decided, now is the time to redress the balance. Now is the time for a shift in policy that actually does not discriminate on the basis of tribal affiliation. It's time that the tribe of Judah paid their fair share. Now, what's the lesson we learn in this? Right from the offset then, I think the lesson we learn is simply this. In turbulent seasons, sensitivity to other people's situations and needs is critical if unity is to be maintained. Right? This is the background. We've got political turmoil. We've got policies that could be changed in a changing leadership. And what we learn from this is, listen, in turbulent seasons, it's really wise for us to be sensitive to other people's needs. If we are insensitive, relationships break down. On the human level in this story, sensitivity does not happen. They jockey for position, and both sides essentially follow some bad advice that results in the nation going separate ways. Let's have a look right from the outset at the bad advice that the 10 northern tribes follow. The bad advice is this, to get our way, let's blindside him. To get our way, let's blindside him. Rehoboam goes to Shechem, we read, to be made king. He thinks it's a done deal. He thinks he's Solomon's son. Everything in, Solomon, uh, in Solomon's reign was pretty cozy. The nation prospered. There are no big issues. I'm going to Shechem in order to be made king. They went to Shechem because that was the place where God appeared to Abraham. 
And so significant national decisions happened in significant places. It's the same over here. It's the same in a lot of countries around the world. But Rehoboam is basically caught unawares because he makes an assumption. The assumption that he makes is that there was an established hereditary transition of power that exists at this point in time. He's going there thinking that because he's Solomon's son, he is going to be made king. But think about it. Has it ever happened like this up until this point? Now, to help us understand this point, that he makes an assumption about the process that sets him up to be blindsided, I'd really like a volunteer. Is there someone out there who likes studying the Old Testament? George, I was hoping you'd be here. Come join me on the stage. He's like, oh, what have I done? What have I done? This guy knows his Bible, folks. So we're going to have a simple, uh, come up on the stage, George. He, uh, yeah, you, you, you asked for it. Um, so I'm going to simply ask you some questions, okay, genealogical questions, and uh, pretty simple, I think so, okay. Um, and, and all I would say is partway through, there's a cheat screen up there if you need one when we get there, okay? Okay, so if you catch him looking up, okay, you, you, you know why. So George, simple question first off, okay? Abraham had two sons. His first son was? Ishmael. And his second one was? Isaac. Who received the blessing, the first or the second? The second. Okay, you, you get this, right? Now, let, let's take it down. Isaac, his first son was? Uh, uh, Help him out, folks. Esau, your wife knew. <laughs> yeah, okay. No, no, that's Jacob. Yeah, Esau, right? Esau, I'm And sorry. the second one is? Esau and Isaac. Uh, Esau and Jacob. Jacob. You know what's fun? If we were to go off stage here and we weren't going to have all of you looking at him, he would nail this. You put someone on the stage and under the lights, it's kind of freaky, right? So you, you basically, we've got Esau, okay, we've got Jacob. Who received the blessing? Um, we're talking about... See, this is Jacob's goes theology. So who, who... Let's go back in context here a sec. This... Would you, could you repeat your question? I think sure. I was off in a long way. So you're off in a... Yeah, that's right, under lights. So... Abraham, you have Ishmael, right. and Isaac. I'm establishing a pattern, right? Sure. So go with me. Who receives the blessing? Right. Right. Normally it's basically Isaac. Then you have Isaac son. has sons. And is it Esau or Jacob that ultimately the lineage follows through? Jacob. Jacob. Okay. Now, now this is where it gets a little bit easier. Now we're getting into the monarchical period, okay? Jacob basically... And you can, if we get in trouble here, Jacob has a couple of sons, okay? The oldest son, quite a lot of them, the oldest son's name was? Ephraim? Reuben. Okay, Reuben. Okay, this is what I could... keep on thinking, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Yes, exactly. So you get Reuben, and then you, who ultimately gets the blessing, though? Help me out, folks. Joseph. Right, Joseph, right? Yeah, Are you seeing a pattern here? The oldest one is Reuben. It's, it's going all this way. Now, now we get to, out of Joseph, right, tribe of Benjamin, there comes Saul, okay, mm -hmm. King Saul. His son was? Jonathan. Saul wants Jonathan to ultimately be made <clears throat> king, but God says, that ain't going to happen. Mm. Who becomes king? David. David, you, you see the pattern here? Now, from David, David's first son, this is where it gets fun. David's oldest son. Yeah, have a look on the screen. Look up on the screen. Oh, uh, Amnon. He's good, isn't he? Amnon. Now, Amnon is, is, is right there. Yeah, exactly. He's on the screen. Um, Amnon is interesting, right? He's the oldest son. He rapes Tamar. 
David doesn't deal with this appropriately. Absalom and his other sons are, are up in arms about this, and Amnon actually gets killed, right? He gets killed. Who receives the, the monarchy after David? After David, it's uh, Solomon. It's Solomon. So, here, George, thank you for this. To, to, can we thank George for this and to say thank you for this? This is $5 from the gathering grounds. <laughs> it, it's, so there's a pattern being established, right? It, the pattern from the very beginning was that the oldest son didn't necessarily get it. But Rehoboam goes to Shechem thinking, this is mine. He's making an assumption, and the assumption that he's making is, listen, this pattern that has happened up until this point isn't going to be repeated here because life under Solomon was great. Right? He's going to be blindsided because he has a view of the world under his father's leadership that basically a lot of people didn't reflect. So he's going to be blindsided because he's bought into a process based on an assumption that isn't true. Now, the second part of this, and we see this, Solomon, Rehoboam goes there, and he thinks this is great, but the reality is it isn't going to work out that way. His assumption is about to get him blindsided. He's blindsided by the presence of Jeroboam. Many of us miss this. We've read in the opening chapters, in the opening verses of chapter 12, that Jeroboam was in Egypt when Solomon died. Why was he in Egypt? Well, the answer from chapter 11 is because Solomon wanted to kill him. Solomon wanted to kill him, and so Jeroboam fled to Egypt to stay safe. And so as soon as Solomon dies, the ten tribes believe the time is right for us to redress the political balance, and who better to call on than Jeroboam, one of the officials over the forced labor that Solomon used. He knows the truth here. He's got an inside scoop into the way things work. And so they call Jeroboam back, and the text tells us that it is Jeroboam who is the spokesperson for what they want to see. And so right here, as he walks in, Rehoboam is completely and utterly blindsided. How many of you have ever been blindsided? Most of us probably have one way or another, right? Maybe it's a relationship that basically was broken in a way that you didn't expect. Maybe for some of you, it was in work. You went into a meeting and you were basically blindsided because your boss expected you to present something, but nobody actually passed on the information. Now, in situations like that, our blindsiding is usually a consequence of complexity or somebody missing to say something. But in this story, the blindside is intentional and it's malicious. Now, no matter how you were blindsided, if you have been blindsided, how did you feel? Any of you like being blindsided? Any of you willing to say you get angry when you get blindsided? So many of us read this story of Rehoboam and we think, how could you be so foolish? The answer is pretty simple. He's been fed a narrative of the world that he since he was young that he believes to be true, and he goes into a meeting where he discovers that not everybody viewed his father the same way. Any of you ever discover truths about your father that disturbed you? He's blindsided, and more to the point, the one who is doing the blindsiding is the one his father tried to have put in his place. If any of you have ever felt blindsided, then you know what it feels like. You know then, personally, that blindsiding has its downside. What does it do? Blindsiding, being blindsided, brings such emotional devastation that unless you deal with that pain, 
it's unlikely that the relationship will ever get to the point where it once was. More than that, if you blindside someone, your actions are usually judged negatively by an awful lot of people. But again, this is the part of the story that we never fully enter into. In our minds, Rehoboam is basically foolish. Can I suggest to you, if you've ever been blindsided, you would probably do exactly what Jeroboam does. Because it's emotionally disturbing. You know, the higher up in an organization you are, the reality is the more easy it is, the more likely it is for you to be blindsided. The more people you have in your family, the easier it is for you to be blindsided. So what do we do then to minimize the risk of us being blindsided in complex seasons? I think the answer is simple. What we need to do is we need to note our blind spots before it blindsides us. Note your blind spot before it blindsides you. Let me give you an example of this. John came to me distraught. His wife, Joan, had told him quite unexpectedly that she wanted a divorce. When I talked to John, he had no idea that things were that bad. I asked John if it was possible for me to call Joan and just get her perspective on this. He said, yes, please, Pastor, please. I want to save my marriage. So I called Joan. Joan, I said, John has come to see me, and he told me that you want to end the marriage. It caught him so off guard, I said. And she said, Pastor, that's the thing. I said, what do you mean? She said, Pastor, I have been nagging him to deal with the issues for months. I have told him for years that I'm not happy. And he never takes me seriously. She said, I've even suggested counseling that he has never, ever taken up. It may be a surprise to him, but it's a surprise simply because the only conclusion I can make is that I matter less to him than the life he's living. Psychologists will tell you that John is suffering from what is called sudden divorce syndrome. 60% of people who experience that are male, 40% are female. In a scenario like that, the spouse has been blindsided because there's a blind spot. It's not that the issues were not there. It's that he never, ever took them seriously. In relational conflict, the wisest thing that we can do is to keep our eyes open and make sure that we don't allow our blind spots to blindside us. This is exactly what happened to Rehoboam. He failed to see how complex transitions were, and he failed to account for the dissatisfaction of the northern tribes. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were Rehoboam, I would have come away from that meeting wondering, how did I miss this? How did I miss this? See, here's the problem. The more authority you hold, the less likely it is the people tell you the whole story. If you rule your family as the patriarch, it is highly likely that there are tensions in your relationship with members of your family that you have no idea about. Most of the time, those tensions never rise to the surface, but when they do, they'll often blindside us. They blindside us because, unfortunately, it is often the case that people struggle to tell us the truth. Sometimes it's because they don't want to hurt us. Sometimes it's because they don't want to come over as mean. Sometimes it's because they feel responsible for how that truth will make you feel. Sometimes they're simply afraid to tell you because they don't know how you react. But whatever it is, sometimes it is tough to be aware of our blind spots. But if we want our relationships to deepen, we need to keep our eyes open to our blind spots because if we don't, it is possible that one day our blind spots 
will blindside us. Friends, it's never wise to win an argument through a blindside. But the best way to deal with this is to make sure that we keep our relationships as healthy as we possibly can. And the key part of that is being willing to have honest conversations about where we fail. The, the way to do that is when our spouse tells us, I've got a real issue here. I'm not happy. I need to work this through. The best thing we can do to keep the relationship strong is not to ignore them, but to deal with them. So in this story, what we have is Rehoboam being blindsided because there's a blind spot that he wasn't aware of. Now let's move to the, the next part of this. Rehoboam is, is blindsided. He didn't expect this. If you've ever been blindsided in a way that you did not expect, you don't like it. The emotions are stirring. And so the bad advice in a situation like that is this. Seek the affirmation you need. This is the bad advice. Seek the affirmation you need to know it's not your fault. Seek the affirmation you need to know you don't need to change anything. It'll all work out in the end. This is exactly what Rehoboam does. Now, what's interesting with this is that even though we live in the information age, information seems to make an awful lot of people uncomfortable. I say that because it seems as though many seek affirmation for what they consider to be true rather than the information that helps them determine what is true. Someone has said, we appear to live in a day where people are willing to be wrong, providing the right people agree with them. Do I get an amen to that, or is it too close to home? <laughs> Rehoboam is angry. Understandably so. He's been blindsided. So what does he do? He acts on what I'm going to call affirmation bias. And I think we all do it. Have a look at the next part of the story. Rehoboam answered, go away for three days and then come back to me. You know why he needed three days? He needed to calm down. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam went to the people of the northern kingdom and saw what life was really like for them. Is that what he does? He's just been presented with a worldview that is nothing like the worldview that he heard about growing up. He's heard that in contrast to the idea that people were really prospering and thriving under his father's leadership, people are actually struggling and there's discrimination. I know parts of this, depending on your ethnic group, don't, right? It, it doesn't sit nicely. But all I'm doing is reading the story. What does he do? He, he consults with the elders who served his father Solomon during his lifetime. He goes to the people that he's comfortable with. He goes to the very people that actually told him the narrative and supported the narrative he heard growing up. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, if today you will be the servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. Two possible translations or interpretations here. The first one is the one we're familiar with. These people got it right. They recognized that a king is the servant of the people, and if there is something wrong, then the king basically needs to serve. Right? The second interpretation, which is possible from the Hebrew, is this. Hey, Rehoboam, all you need to do is to give them what they need to hear today. Tomorrow you'll be king, and then you can do whatever you want. Both of those interpretations are possible. We're familiar with the first one. The second one is also a possibility. Here's what we read. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him. Again, two reasons for that. One is 
He didn't want to serve the people, which is often what we think. The second one is he's not comfortable being duplicitous, and he thinks that the case that they've made against his father is only partially true. You have to make your own mind up on that. Most of us have grown up hearing that Rehoboam basically wanted a rule with an iron fist. Okay. The other part of this is, no, I don't like the idea of being a duplicitous king. Whichever one it is, he rejects their advice. So then it says, he consults with the young men who'd grown up with him and were serving him. So in other words, the elders here refers to those people that advise Solomon. It could be old and young, by the way. Okay, and the young men ultimately refers to the new advisors that he put around him to help him lead. What is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. That must have been an accident. What a statement that is, huh? My father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will make you heavier. My father scourged you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. Now, you can either read that and interpret that the way it's been interpreted, or you can read that and interpret that as saying, look, you've overextended the claim, over-exaggerated the claims here. My father did not subject you to harsh labor. You prospered, and I'm going to call you a bluff. Again, whichever interpretation you take on this, the issue is the fact that Rehoboam basically acted in a way that didn't expand his worldview. He went to the people who didn't really know the life of the northern tribes, or at very least had a lot to lose if the taxation policies were changed. Affirmation bias. Going to the very people who reinforce the narrative that we hear What he should have done is actually gone to the ground level and learned for himself what was actually true. Affirmation bias. We could go in so many different directions with this, couldn't we? But I'm not going to. How many news channels do you watch? One of the biggest struggles I have in, in America is that the news channels are so partisan. Didn't grow up with that. Affirmation bias. What do you do in a relationship, in work, in a nation, where you're ultimately told something that doesn't fit the narrative that you've heard? Do you see the application here? I, I'm not going to go there. But do you see the application? Th these are real issues. And Rehoboam got it wrong. He basically sought affirmation rather than what? The good advice here, seek information, not affirmation. Seek information, not affirmation. Seeking information prevents us from making decisions that destroy relationships unnecessarily. Let me give you an example of how this works. I received a phone call from a lady I'll call Brenda. Brenda was irate. She was irate because Peter, her CEO, had blindsided her. Brenda and Peter had had their regular monthly meeting, and at that monthly meeting, Brenda told Peter that there was a department head who really didn't have the skills that it needed to take their company into the next stage. She was irate because she was approached by the person that she was referring to, telling her that Peter had said to him, uh, to her, that uh, or to him, that he was not capable of taking the company forward. The person looked at Brenda and said, "Since you value me that highly, I quit right here, right now." Walked out. Brenda was irate. She could not understand why Peter would possibly do that to her. The first thing I did in that conversation was literally talk Brenda off the ledge. Brenda, you doing the same thing as this person did isn't going to help anything, and it's not going to discover the truth. 
Brenda, you are irate right now. You are so angry, and you want me to give you information that affirms your right to be angry, but I can't do that because I don't know the older story. Have you spoken to Peter about this? No, I'm too angry to do that. And I said, well, it's probably good for you not to have this conversation while you're angry. Let's talk this through. I said, Brenda, when I'm in a situation where I've been blindsided like this, and it's happened to me many times in ministry, I said, what I realized is I needed to have a way of dealing with my emotions because when I act out emotionally, I ruin relationships. Any of you with me? You ever done that? The harmony in a relationship goes because we've been so hurt that we respond badly. And she said, so how did you deal with that? I said, so ask God to give me a phrase. And I've got a lot of these phrases, and one of those phrases is this. When I'm hurt by someone, this is what I do. I remember that I expect a godly person to do a godly thing and a righteous person to do a righteous thing. If they don't, I'll deal with it. I said, Brenda, what would it look like if Peter actually did a godly thing right now because he's a godly person? Can you perceive of a scenario, I said, where Peter would ultimately be doing the righteous thing because he's a righteous person? Let's try and think about what scenarios there could be that actually would make sense of that. And as we talked it through, Brenda could think about a number of scenarios where Peter may well have done the right thing, although made a mistake of not telling her before the person walked in and blindsided her. We ended the conversation in prayer. I said, Brenda, over the next 24 hours, get on Peter's uh, calendar, have this conversation, and say, look, I know you're a godly, righteous person, and I know godly, righteous people do godly, righteous things, but could you possibly tell me how this thing worked out? I got a text message from her 24 hours later saying, we were absolutely right. Peter was in a meeting with this person, recognized that they were behaving in ways that wasn't good for the company, and basically dealt with the issue saying, he and Brenda, both of them didn't think that this person had what it took to move forward. And before Peter had the chance to tell Brenda, that person had already quit. See, it's very easy when we've been wronged to jump to a conclusion that somebody is unrighteous and ungodly. And that may be the case, but friends, it's not always the case. Sometimes what we want when we're hurt, hurt is to have our hurt affirmed. When what we really need is to have our information broadened. Now, two points from that story. I'd encourage Brenda that, to realize that even with this kind of righteous scenario, Peter made a mistake. Brenda was blindsided because Peter delayed to tell her. And listen, here's the point. If you have ever acted in a way that has blindsided someone unintentionally, you cannot hide behind intent. I'm sorry, I didn't intend to hurt you. Pain is caused by impact, not intentionality. And if we always hide behind, oh, I didn't mean to, we're never owning the hurt and the harm that causes the relational friction. So listen, if you've ever hurt someone unintentionally, learn the lesson of Peter's mistake. Recognize that as people, we are basically going to be evaluated by impact, not intent. The second part of this story is that when blindsided, it is really important that you and I have a mechanism for dealing with our raging emotions and our racing mind. I shared my axiom with Brenda. That axiom serves to basically uh, 
assume the best of someone until it's proven otherwise. What does that do? It basically protects the relationship, and it puts me in a position where I am ultimately assuming the best, not the worst. And that mindset helps me deal with this situation in a way that stops my affirmation bias. Listen, our emotions are so strong that they will naturally lead us to seek affirmation for our pain rather than information to process it. If we don't control that, our relationships break. Here's what we're going to do at this point. I want you to think about one relationship where there's tension. It could be a marriage. Could be a relationship with a spouse. Could be a relationship with a child. Could be a relationship with an extended family member. Some of you may be in a season where there's no tension at all. Think about a relationship where there was tension. And I've asked Hannah and Ben and Josh to sing a song that is going to be familiar to many of you. It's a song that was written by Joe South in the 1960s, and it's called Walk a Mile in Their Shoes. You remember that? It was covered by Elvis Presley, believe it, in 1970. Now, the line that hits me in this, which is why I want us to think about this, is this. Before you abuse, criticize, and accuse, walk a mile in my shoes. Before you abuse, criticize and accuse, walk a mile in my shoes. Now, that song was originally written to address the racial tension in the nation back in the 60s. But actually, that phrase, walk a mile in my shoes, stems from Native American tribes. The first reference to it is actually a poem that was written in 1895 called Judge Softly, written by Mary Lathrop. And in that poem, she encourages people to walk a mile in someone else's moccasins. In other words, for over 130 years, it's been considered wisdom in a relational conflict, in a season of turbulence, before we do anything, to actually start to think about life from the other person's perspective. So as they sing this, Think about that one relationship. Think about that tension. And ask yourself, what does this look like from their angle? And then we move it forward from here. Thanks, guys. Walk a mile in my shoes 
down in the ghettos, oh yeah. And brought the bond for the grace of God, it could be you and I. And if I only had the wings of a little angel, don't you know? To the top of the mountain, then I would cry. So walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. Before you abuse, criticize, and accuse. Walk a mile in my shoes. Thanks, guys. I, I want to wrap this up by putting the, the kind of God perspective on this. I, I've said that Rehoboam was blindsided because he had a blind spot he never dealt with. And the reality is, even if he'd have worked on that blind spot, the, the tough part of this is I'm not sure it would have made any difference at all. And, and the, the reality is a, a challenging lesson for many of us. And this is bad advice number three. In certain relationships where there's tension, the worst thing that we can do is to protect unity at all costs. I, I realize that that's not a necessarily a, a popular thing to say, but I say it for a reason. You see, when we look at this story, we see that God was preparing the nation to basically go their separate ways. Why do we say that? Well, this is 1 Kings 11, 9 through 13. This is the word of the Lord that came to Solomon and basically said, Solomon, you know what? You've ruled so badly in the latter part of your life that when this kingdom actually comes to your son, Rehoboam, it's actually going to be stripped and divided down the middle as a judgment on your sin. You go on to, this is Jeroboam. Before Solomon had the chance to kill Jeroboam, a prophet of the Lord came to Jeroboam and told him that God had actually called him to lead the 10 tribes. This is before the story that we looked at in chapter 12. Jeroboam, this kind of corrupt king, actually, where does he, he seeks exile in where? Egypt, where does Jesus go? Do you see the analogies here? And then thirdly here, what we see is after all of this is done, Rehoboam is angry. He amasses 180,000 troops, and he's going to bring these northern tribes back into line. And a prophet of the Lord goes to, Jer uh, to Rehoboam and says, listen, don't do it, because God has made the division decision. That's a hard reality to grasp, isn't it? that sometimes no matter how much we work for unity, to protect unity, sometimes things are just going to go their separate ways. Why would God allow that? I think God allows this because there were lessons He wanted His people to learn for the coming of Jesus. Think about it. One of the hardest passages that Jesus ever taught was this one, Luke chapter 12. Do you think I came to bring priests on earth? No. I tell you, division. See, God and Jesus was making the division decision. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. See, what Jesus is saying is sometimes for truth and holiness to be upheld, Division decisions have to be made. Let me give you an example of this. If I were ever to stand up here and to preach doctrine that is opposed to the Scriptures, you by right should divide yourself from me. Right? God sometimes says truth, holiness needs to be uphold, upheld. And in order to do that, division needs to take place. Now, we don't want it to get to that point. But God says, listen, the ministry of Jesus 
sometimes makes that necessary. Now, I realize there are people in here who, who may have experienced that kind of division. It's painful. And this is where I love the second analogy here. What does Jesus say? Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. It kind of goes directly back to the story of Rehoboam. Jesus says, listen to me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. See, God allows that division decision for his people to walk in holiness and righteousness, but also for his people to receive the comfort they need when their burden has been heavy. So this story functions on two levels. Life functions on two levels. On the human level, we interact with people trying to protect the unity of relationships at all costs. But sometimes, when we have done that, painful division occurs. What we need to realize is in moments like that, where division is based on scriptural truth, friends, we can come to Jesus be welcomed by Jesus, and have our burden lifted, our pain healed, and our life restored. If you're here today and that's you, then come to Jesus and allow Him to minister to you. Thank you all so much for being here today. I pray that as you go through this week, as you engage in relationships that may be tough, that you will be willing to put yourself in the other person's shoes, that God will give you eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that is open to walking wisely in this world. That's been the heart of this series. Now, next week, we're going to start a new series. Pastor Corey is here. It's a series called I Declare War, and uh, we're looking uh, forward to the series. It's going to be an exciting series about how worship is our weapon. We hope you can join us for that. Uh, at the same time, we've got a number of fall groups uh, that uh, we are kicking off. There's a lot more information about those in the lobby. We encourage you to go out there and check those out, get into community, and deepen your understanding of the word in community. Again, thank you so much for being here. Uh, we're glad you were, and we hope you have a great week. We'll see you all next week. God bless.